we're ending a great series too, and I hope you've been blessed by Jonah and everything we've been talking about. Jonah has four chapters. This is our fifth week. So maybe you're going, hmm, what are we going to talk about today? Well, what we're going to do is pull together uh, some of the big picture main themes of Jonah, and we're going to connect the dots to how Jonah relates to Jesus and the New Testament. So uh, hang on, it's going to be really worthwhile. Uh, but first, let's just do a little recap of where we've been in the series. If you haven't been able to be here for all four weeks, the, the story of Jonah begins when God calls him to go preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was a mortal enemy of Jonah's people, Israel. They were a real threat to even the existence of Israel. And so Jonah didn't really want that assignment. He ran away from, from the city, ran away from God. He went 100% the other direction, got on a boat, fled across the sea. And now God wasn't done with him. God wanted to use him. And so God went after him. He sent a storm on Jonah's boat. And in fact, it endangered the lives of the boat, the ship, everybody in it. Till finally Jonah said to the sailors in the ship, look, he said, if you're, the only way you're going to save yourself is if you throw me overboard. This is a quarrel between me and God. It has nothing to do with you, so just throw me overboard. And they did, and the storm ceased because God was working in Jonah's life. So Jonah was then swallowed by this great fish, and he was in the belly of this fish where he, in his distress, prays to God, and he repents of his unwilling attitude, and God heard and gave him a second chance and sent him to Nineveh again in chapter 3. He goes to Nineveh, and this time he obeys God and warns them of the destruction to come from God. And, and to everybody's surprise, including Jonah, the people actually believed what he said. They repented of their evil ways. They humbled themselves before God in, in contrition and in response, God relented of judgment, and he forgave them of their sin. So everybody lived happily ever after, right? No, because there's chapter 4, where Jonah was really bent with God because God forgave his enemy. And so God, we see in chapter 4, is working with Jonah. He's nurturing him to get him over his big pout and to, to address the issues about why he's mad with God. Now, the end of the story actually happens... 150 years later when Assyria had gone back to their evil ways again, their old ways, and 150 years later the nation was destroyed as God brought other enemies against them, and Assyria doesn't exist today. Now, now that we're all, kept, we're all caught up, let me remind you of the big idea that we've seen through the whole series, that the story of Jonah is about the God of miracles who's willing to let everyone off the hook for their sins. So we're going to look today at some of the miracles that God did in the book of Jonah as encouragement to us, and this whole idea that God lets people off the hook for their sins. You want to see how does that apply to us, maybe to you? Now, in the whole series, we've clarified, however, that God doesn't just let people off the hook because he's just looking the other way, or he doesn't really care about sin, it doesn't matter to him, or he's just like pretending it isn't a real thing, a real deal. Not, not at all. But every one of the sins that we commit in our lives, whether it's our thoughts, motives, attitudes, words, actions, whatever it might be, every single one of them is a sin against a perfect and righteous and holy God. And so every 
one of our sins deserves his judgment. The Bible says the payment for that sin is death. But because God is so merciful, compassionate toward us, that he sent his son to pay that penalty in our place. And when we respond to him by faith and repentance, as we saw with Nineveh, when we respond to him, then, we, then he lets us off the hook because the price has already been paid. So today we're going to look at miracles from the book of Jonah. Now, because there's miracles in here, it doesn't mean that this is a fairy tale. It doesn't mean that this is some kind of Pinocchio story like that somebody made up. But Jonah's a real person. He lived in a real place in a real historical period. So 2 Kings, for example, uh, tells the story. Jeroboam II, the king, recovered the territories of Israel between Lebo Hamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So 2 Kings is part of the historical books of the Old Testament. It's a record of what actually happened. It's, it's like a chronology. And, and so it lists Jonah having an actual father and being from an actual town, and a town that, was, that happened to be in the region that was assigned to the tribe of Zebulun in northern part of Israel. And the places that are listed in the book of Jonah are real places historically. But what seals the deal for me about the historicity of Jonah is how Jesus spoke about Jonah. Jesus, we're going to see a little bit later this morning that Jesus talked about Jonah. When he did, he mentioned him by name and referred to the details of his story, clearly with the assumption that this is historical, it's actual historical events that took place. Jesus treated those things as if they were real and actual. Jonah, a real person who did certain actual things. And so when we talk about the miracles of Jonah, you know, this, this is a story that actually happened, that God actually worked. Now, there's more than four miracles in the book of Jonah, but we're looking, we're focusing on four particular times where it says specifically that God acted, that God did this, or God caused that, or God arranged this other thing. And so my goal this morning as we talk about this, I, w- I just want to encourage you to believe God. I want to encourage you to take seriously what God reveals about himself in our life because that's such a hope and encouragement that we can trust in him for any and every situation that might arise in our lives and ultimately to entrust our whole life and our whole eternity to him. Okay, So let's look at those four things. The first miracle is that God spoke to Jonah. That's a miracle. That's how the the whole book begins, right? In chapter 1, verse 1, and into verse 2, it says, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and announce my judgment upon it because I have seen how wicked its people are. God spoke directly with clarity and a specific thing, a specific task that he told Jonah to do. He spoke to him again in chapter 3. He spoke to him three times in chapter 4. That's a miracle because the idea of God speaking to human beings cannot be explained simply by natural or scientific laws. But here's a great part of the miracle, not just that God can and does communicate with people, but I'm astounded that God would even want to speak to us, and He'd want us to communicate back to Him. 
That's pretty amazing. Now, when you think about the history of God speaking, it all starts at the very beginning of the Bible, where God spoke the whole universe into existence. In Genesis chapter 1, each new day of creation begins with the same phrase. It says, then God said. Then God said, let there be light. And on it goes down the list. And every time he said, it happened. Because when God says something, it's going to occur. So Isaiah uh, reflects on this with us. In Isaiah 55, God says, it's the same with my word. I send it out. It always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to. It will prosper everywhere I send it. So God's word is powerful. And so he's saying through Isaiah the prophet that his word is always going to have the effect that he intends it to have. And it's never going to fail. The amazing thing is, if you think about it, is that you and I get to experience this same miracle all the time. It's amazing. We, we get to have God speak to us. And God invites us to speak back to him. Now, personally, I've never had God speak to me in an audible voice that I could actually hear with my physical ears. I know others at Alpine Church who have had that experience. It's, been a, it's kind of a special thing that God spoke audibly at certain really crucial points in their life. That's never happened in my life. But God has spoken to me countless times by His Spirit, through His people, through His Word, the Bible, and often in conjunction, those three things in conjunction together. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There you see that the power of the Word of God, that God speaks to us every time that we open His Word, the Bible. It's like a sword. It's sharp. It's active. It's not just ink on a page or pixels on a screen. It's not just the physical media that you can hold, but, but there's a power in it of the Holy Spirit working through this Word of God. Every time you open it, God speaks. He speaks of His goodness and power. Every time you open it, God speaks of His great love for you. Or He speaks of our need and our, and our brokenness and need for a Savior. When you open it, God speaks wisdom for your decisions. He speaks comfort for your challenges. He speaks forgiveness for your sins. And he invites all of us to open his book and experience the miracle of God speaking to you. Here's another miracle. It's a miracle in Jonah that God controlled the storm. Let me remind you what happened. We said Joseph, uh, Jonah got on a boat. He fled the other direction, away from God, across the Mediterranean Sea. And they said, the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Well, the ship that he's talking about there is the ship that Jonah was on. Now, this wasn't just uh, bad luck, a bad timing on Jonah's part that he sailed at the wrong time of year. It wasn't just a coincidence. It says God whipped up the wind. He whipped up the storm, caused it to get Jonah's attention. And you know, we're amazed, right, when we see a mighty storm at sea. Have you ever had the opportunity to, to see that? In person, it's like, whoa, man, the, the awesomeness of what God has created. It's, it's even frightening at times. 
Or maybe you've seen pictures of, or lived through a hurricane, or seen pictures of the recent Hurricane Ian and all the the wind and the water and the devastation that that created. And that makes sense then why ocean storms carried a great deal of symbolism in the ancient world that Jonah lived in. In fact, many pagan uh, religions saw the sea as synonymous with chaos. And, And these ancient cultures all had a god of the sea who personified the untamed raging power of the ocean. But the sea is not untamable to God. Now, in most cases, a storm may simply be a force of nature. But not in this case. It arose not because of atmospheric conditions. It arose because God caused it to He made it happen. That's why this storm was a miracle. Now, the Bible reflects on that. When when God talks to Job about his power, he says to Job, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb, as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barreled gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. So God controls the forces of nature, the sea, the storm. And not only did he cause a storm, but the second half of the miracle is that God calmed the storm. In chapter 1, we see the sailors trying everything, desperately trying anything they can to try to survive that storm. They're throwing stuff, the cargo's going overboard. They're trying to lighten the ship, everything they can do, but to no avail. Why? Because God was in that storm. God was working through that storm. And finally, as Jonah told them to, they threw him overboard, and the storm stopped at once. Just immediately it was calm. That's a miracle. That doesn't have an explanation in nature. Most of us, we see when a storm is over, it abates slowly and gradually and begins to blow away. But these these sailors on this ship were so amazed, they were awestruck, it says, by God's great power... If you make your living on the sea, then you're going to see all kinds of harsh weather and severe waves and so forth, but they'd never seen anything like this, a storm that blew in with such power and that then immediately stopped to the point where they offered sacrifice to God in acknowledgement that this was Him and what He was doing, and, and they made vows to obey God because of His great power over the sea. God controlled the storm. That's why the disciples were so amazed when they saw Jesus do this in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus said to them, so they're out on a little boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up. Jesus says to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed, said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Maybe they had in the back of their mind the story of Jonah and what had happened, what God had done. They saw Jesus do something just like that. Now, that very, earlier that very day, they'd seen Jesus heal the sick. They'd seen him cast demons out of people. But this came home to them with force because they were in peril and threatened in the middle of that little boat on the, on the raging sea. And so this meant something to them. It wasn't abstract anymore. And so... When they saw him control the sea and the winds, they were so, so amazed. And it gave them an inkling of who Jesus is when he controlled the storm. 
Now, here's the, the next miracle. It's a miracle that God provided the fish in Jonah's story. Now, I wanted to look into this a little bit because a lot of people look at the story and think it's just a fish tail, right? It's like a tall tail, a yarn. And so I, I wanted to find out if it's even possible for a fish to swallow a human being. I found this, it is, and that there's actually one species of whale that swallows a whole giant squid. But what makes this a miracle is that God caused it to happen. Not just that it happened, but that God caused it to happen. The Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. That kind of cracks me up a little bit. Like, you think God made arrangements. Like, God called the fish agency and said, you know, could I get a fish on Tuesday at, at 10 p.m. Uh, at this place? You know, no, that's not how God does it. He doesn't have to do it that way. He just wills it, and it happens. So, we see God using animals throughout the Bible. God caused a, a ram to get its horns thought caught in a thicket so that Abraham could offer a sacrifice to him. We see God used Balaam's donkey to speak to Balaam so that Balaam would not put a curse on the Israelites. God gave a flock of quail and caused a flock of quail to come to feed his hungry people when they were in the wilderness. One time Jesus, he found two gold coins in the mouth of a fish and he used it to pay the temple tax for him and his followers. That wasn't a coincidence. Like He's like, oh, let's find the fish with coins in it. That was something that God did. And there's plenty more examples of God's sovereignty over all of creation. Except, of course, for cats, right? Cats don't obey anybody. That's right. I could say more about cats. You've probably heard me rant on cats. But you don't need to send me an email or anything, okay? Because my wife's already going to take care of the chastisement department <laughs> there for me on that. Just saying, no, the fact is even cats obey God when he speaks. And here's how God challenged Job about this. Again, back to the book of Job, he's reflecting on this. Job, God says to Job, is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle rises to the heights to make its nest? The implication is, no, you don't have control over this, but I do, God says. And so we see throughout the story of Jonah, how much God's character is revealed and how his power and authority is highlighted throughout the story. Now, one more example of that. The final miracle we're going to look at today, it's a miracle that the fish could not contain Jonah. So Jonah swallowed. He's inside the belly of this fish for, for three days. Now, of course, that in and of itself is a miracle for Jonah to survive in those conditions. I was reading about like the interior of that whale. It's not like you see in Pinocchio where you can just sit there and make a little fire and, you know, and kind of enjoy a little. It, it, there's no room in there. There's no, there's no air in there. So it really took a miracle of God. Now, there's a couple of possibilities that biblical scholars speak about, and there's different uh, Voices behind either possibility. They could be both plausible. The first one is that, that Jonah actually died in the belly of the fish and God resuscitated him when the fish spit him up. Or the other one is that God just supernaturally kept him alive that whole time. Either way, either one of those is a miracle. Now, I know we talk about miracles. It's challenging in our secular society um, in the culture we live in compared to like cultures in centuries ago in the past. 
that we really wrestle with this idea of miracles. It's not what is, seems normal in our society. So maybe you're wrestling with miracles, or maybe you're wrestling with this particular miracle. But the way I've always approached this is that, you know, if, if there is a God, an infinite God who exists, who created everything, then none of these miracles really becomes a problem then. For the God who spoke the world into existence, who controls the seas and the wind and the storms, for the God who commands the animal world to do his will, neither of these miracles would be particularly difficult. Now we saw in chapter 2 that in his distress, when he first got swallowed by that fish, Jonah's praying and he's coming to this attitude of repentance. And at that point in time, God acts. In chapter 2, verse 10, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. See, again, God is in command. God is active. It's not just some random chance event. God commands the fish, and the fish does what God commands him to do. Now, if only Jonah had done that in the first place, right? This is the thing that we have as human beings. God gives us choice, not just instinct. We have choices. God commanded Jonah, and Jonah said no. If only, God, if only Jonah had obeyed God in the first place, how much trouble would he have avoided in his life? And you know, that's so true for us, too, in so many situations in life. We, we, young people, you know, you, you, you don't, haven't seen all of the worst side of life yet. So it's important to make wise choices that can avoid a lot of trouble in life by obeying God's ways. But what I want to do now as we close, I want to do one last thing. I want to connect the dots of the story of Jonah to the rest of the Bible, especially to the New Testament, because the story of Jonah actually points us forward to another miracle, perhaps the greatest miracle that humanity has ever witnessed, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. There's a direct connection between Jonah and the resurrection of Jesus. And we see it. Jesus actually made the connection in Matthew chapter 12. So one day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign but the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So these religious leaders, these are the leading religious authorities of Jesus' day. They come to him asking for a miraculous sign. They want him to prove his authority to them. Well, you know, Jesus had already performed all kinds of miracles in public. He'd healed the sick. He'd cast out demons, many other things, and everybody had seen it. He wasn't doing it in, you know, in private. And so that's why Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation, because they refused to believe what he'd already revealed about himself. And it's like it's Jesus is saying, look, I could do anything you want me to do. You're still not going to believe because your hearts are hard toward me. So he says, I'm only going to give you one sign, the only one you're going to get, a sign of the prophet Jonah. And at this point, they're probably going, what? What's that? You know, it's kind of cryptic. And he says, well, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, he says, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for the same amount of time. And we understand, of course, in retrospect that he's talking about his death and burial. 
So Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in the sealed tomb. And just as the fish spit Jonah out onto the shore, the grave could not contain Jesus, and it had to release him to new life. Jesus was raised again on the third day. And so when he rose from the dead, that's like a a major exclamation point on his whole life, on his whole work. It's a, a huge affirmation of what he did on the cross. His resurrection declares, it proclaims that he conquered death for all of those who belong to him, that he conquered the the sin and the, and the power of sin for all of those who trust in him. And the Bible says that his resurrection is the guarantee that his people will also be raised from the dead to glory in a like manner as him. And so the book of Jonah, just like the whole Bible, really, the book of Jonah points to Jesus. That should be no surprise to us, right? You see all the parallels, Jonah He's called to go to a Gentile nation and, and preach the message of repentance. And when the people repented, he didn't like it because they were foreigners, they were enemies. Well, similarly, Jesus came to the Jewish people, but he also came for the Gentiles as well. And we discover, we see him interacting with, with the Samaritan woman, with others who were, who were in the Gentile world as well. And, and his intention was for his good news to transcend the Jewish nation and go to the whole world. And That's one reason I believe the Jewish religious leaders of his time hated and opposed him. So you see, Jonah, he sacrificed himself for the sailors on that boat to save their lives from the storm. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for all who believe to save us from our sin. We see that Jonah threw himself into the fury of the sea while Jesus threw himself into the fury of God's wrath on the cross. Jonah, again, in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus was in the grave for three days. And just as the fish could not hold Jonah, the grave could not contain Jesus. So you know when Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh, another miracle happened. The people believed God's message and repented. Repentance is a miracle. Anytime somebody comes to faith, anytime somebody turns from their own self-directed way of life and turns toward God, that's a miracle. Now, clearly, nobody would have expected the Assyrian people to do that or to have any kind of response to God, these arrogant, violent, cruel people, but God softened their hearts, and in this miracle of repentance, they turned to Him. None of us can come to God unless... God does that in us, unless God draws us, unless God works in our heart. And yet here's the thing, even when he does that, some of us still refuse to believe. Back to Jesus' interaction here with the religious leaders, the very next verse, Jesus warns them, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah's here, but you refuse to repent. He's talking to the top leaders, the religious leaders of his day. They could have understood, but they refused. And so the people of Nineveh stand in condemnation of them. 
Because they turned to God when they heard. And here these people have seen and heard Jesus, the Son of God, and they remain hard-hearted. So I firmly believe today that some of you are experiencing a miracle right now. Because the God of the universe is speaking to you. He's drawing you to himself. He's softening your heart toward him right now. How will you respond? See, it's not just the Ninevites who needed to repent. It's not just Jonah with his sour attitude toward God that needed to repent. Each and every one of us needs to turn from our own self-directed life and to turn to God. To turn from our definition of what's real and true and right and to turn to what God says about that. The Bible says that every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Well, here's another amazing miracle that God does. God didn't just leave us in that condition, but he sent his son. Jesus came into the world. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And on the cross, he paid the debt that we should have paid. He was in the grave three days, and the grave couldn't hold him in. And he rose, and he lives today proving that he's the only one who's worthy to take our sins upon himself. And so here's the deal. When you confess your sins and your need and your brokenness and your unworthiness, you confess that to him. And you trust what he did on the cross is enough. Ask him to forgive your sins and to be Lord in your life. Then the Bible says that you can have this absolute confident assurance of new life now and an eternity with him forever. I urge you today to entrust your life and your eternity into Jesus' hands. If you want to do that, if that's what the the miracle God's birthing in your life, come talk to us after the service. We'll we'll help you know how to do that. If you're still exploring that and you're not sure exactly what I mean by that, then come talk to us today after the service is over. But just don't harden your heart toward what God is miraculously doing in you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your power at work in our lives. Thank you for your interest in us, that you're, you want to be engaged in, in our lives. You want to be present. <clears throat> Thank you for the miracles you've already done. The miracle of Jesus rising from the dead. The miracles of your kindness and your goodness uh, leading us to repentance. We think of the situations that we need today, Father. Think of where we need your wisdom today. Think of where we need your courage today. Think of the challenges that we face. We need you to act. It's not good enough to just go with the flow of random occurrences, God. We need you to act on our behalf. We want to trust you today. We want to trust you with our life situations. We want to trust you with our eternity. Trust you with our sins, our need, our failure, our brokenness, Father. We want to trust you with all of that because we know your power is enough, that what Jesus did is enough. And so bring us here. Bring us home, God. Bring us to this place of trust. Help us with our doubts, with our questions, with the things that hinder our belief. God, help us with that, we pray. Looking to you, 
to your miracle-working power in us. In Jesus' name, amen.